Hi folks, Matt here. In the upcoming episode, we said that it was episode 48, and that's because we didn't look at our own website carefully enough. Really, this is episode 49, so please pay no attention to what we say in the beginning of the episode. So thanks for listening, as always, and enjoy episode 49 of the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 48 of the Ask Mr. DNS podcast, recording today only from the top floor of the Hyatt Regency Hotel in San Francisco. And I'm Cricket Lou, joined by... And I'm Matt Larson, and here we are in the same room, we hardly know what to do. (laughs) (laughs) But the nice thing is that we're not going to have to stitch this thing together. We won't, because we've had editing disasters in the past. (laughs) Not not just the past, I think, in the very recent past. The very recent past. (laughs) And I can look at your laptop and see that we're recording, so we have real-time feedback that we're... We just need GarageBand to not freak out when we're done. Right, right. So we we uh, actually have some questions. Our our uh, entreaties to uh, our listener base have not gone unanswered. Yeah. So thank you, everyone. We actually had to decide which questions to answer, which is a, a luxury <laughs> we hardly know how to how to deal with. So should we just get right to it? Yeah. Why not? Why not? All right. So our our first question here is from uh, a listener who wants to remain nameless. Um, he says, given the recent DDoS attacks on Dyn, um, his company uh, is looking at using multiple providers for their external DNS. Mm-hmm. A wise move. Yep. And so he says, updating the name servers is straightforward, as is setting up the zones. But he wants to understand, and he says here, he wants to understand how the DNS glue records at the TLD name servers operate if one of the providers is under attack. And I think I'll, I won't read the rest of his question because... You know, he's, he's referring to glue records and providers at TLDs, but what we decided reading this question is that I think his real answer is basically how do recursive name servers behave when presented with a whole bunch of authoritative name servers, and in this case, if they happen to be spread across multiple providers. And, and, and if some of those name servers are unresponsive. Right, in particular. Because yeah. what, he's, what he's wondering is, okay, I think he, um, well, he, he doesn't give us much information about his, about his setup, but I, I'm, I'm assuming that what happens was he was maybe had only one provider and the provider went down, and now he's wanting to have two providers, and he wants to know, all right, in the future then, in the same or similar situation, when the one provider goes down, how do things happen? How does my other provider still keep things working? Right, right. And and the answer has to do with something called server selection and uh, how recursive name servers do server selection. And the details of how recursive name servers do server selection is actually dependent on the make and model of the recursive name server. Right. I've ranted about this before in that there are many areas of DNS that are underspecified where we just don't have anything in the standards that tell us how to do things. And this is this is maybe the chief example of that. Mm-hmm. I think if you go looking for chapter and verse in RFC 1035, it says something like, well, choose the best name server. <laughs> right. Choose intelligently yeah. among the set of authoritative name servers. And so what that means is implementers have had to figure it out themselves, and everyone does it a little differently. And mm-hmm. so we kind of have... Uh, wisdom over time that is really not, to my knowledge in this case, is not written down anywhere. I think people just sort of know it and it's passed from developer to developer or people learn it by reading source code. Well, I I documented the way that the bind name server does it in DNS and bind. So that material is is documented and it's true at least for, I think, the versions of bind that were current when I wrote those 
those uh, editions of DNS and Bind. But I don't think, for example, we were talking about this earlier, I don't think we ever figured out the details of how, say, the Microsoft DNS server does server selection. No, because it's closed source. So right. it's, it's a black box. You just have to figure it out based on how it behaves. And, and we were talking about this earlier as well, that when we were writing the, um, uh, the Windows versions of the DNS and Bind book, which you, you know, kindly asked me to uh, go in on with you as a co-author, uh, the Microsoft folks, the developers, I remember in particular a guy named Jeff Westhead was very helpful yeah. in, in giving us some you know, inside but non-confidential information as to how their particular algorithm worked. Yeah, but we can we can describe, for example, how bind server selection strategy works, uh, and and to the extent that, well, there are a lot of recursive name servers out there that are based on bind. It'll be true for some mm -hmm. subset of the name servers that are uh, trying to get to Nathan's uh, authoritatives, and uh, basically the the very short version of the answer is bind name servers tend to favor the authoritative name servers that respond most quickly to them. Um, you, can, you can think of a bind name server uh, every time it sends a query to a remote name server as starting a little internal stopwatch and when it gets a response back from that name server it stops that stopwatch and it makes a note of how long that authoritative name server took to respond. Uh, and then the next time it has a choice of a bunch of name servers including that name server it will factor uh, that into its decision. The round trip time or the round, RTT. The round trip time or RTT. So um, I, what that means for, for Nathan is that if, for example, we imagine that he had a set of six NS records, three that pointed to one provider and three that pointed to another provider, and one of those providers was under some sort of attack, and their name servers were very slow to respond, um, the bind name server would would learn over time that those three name servers were slow to respond. It would ratchet up their RTT values to where they probably weren't competitive anymore with uh, the RTT values of the three name servers run by, run by the provider uh, that's not under attack. And so at that point, the name server, the bind name server, would begin to, to favor the other provider, right? Yeah, and, and this actually works remarkably well. I, I remember looking at um, the real-time... Uh, monitoring tools we had at VeriSign where we could see, um, for example, all the .com and .net name servers, uh, the amount of queries they were receiving you know, in, in real time across the entire set of, set of uh, 13 IP addresses. And it was really remarkable how evenly distributed the load was. It wasn't mm -hmm. perfect, but I'd say it was plus or minus 20% at yeah. any given point, which you know, it's, it's, it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it, This is actually a mechanism that's been built into Bind since the very beginning. So we have to give the authors of Bind 4 a tremendous amount of credit for for putting this into Bind so early. Mm -hmm. and, and it is a mechanism that has worked really well. The, the nuances of the mechanism are actually pretty interesting, too, because, of course, Sometimes if you send a query to a remote name server, you don't get a response back at all. So how do you calculate its round trip time if you didn't get a response, right? There's really no round trip in that case. Uh, so there's a way that that works, and then there's a way um, that you change round trip time for name servers that you could have selected but didn't. Right, and then also what do you do to avoid 
sudden changes in RTT, like do you smooth things out over time? Like after you query a server and it responds in a given RTT, do you use that exactly as the new RTT, or do you sort of factor in the past performance along with the current? And the answer is the latter. You, you factor in right. both past performance and the most recent sample. Right. Bind always calculates a weighted average, which is usually about, I think depending on the version of bind, it's either 70 or 80% of the old value plus 20 or 30% of the new sample. Yeah, that's my memory. Yeah. And the other thing, as long as we're talking about this, is there certainly are other ways to do this. And, and I remember, um, again, back when I was at VeriSign, um, we had summer interns, and we had a really sharp summer intern, a guy named Yingdi Yu, uh, who worked with us a couple summers. And I know he's now at Facebook uh, since having gotten his PhD from UCLA. But in the summer of, I think it was 2011 or 2012, um, this was an interest that I always always had, uh, how server selection works in different implementations. And the nice thing is when you have a research intern, you can ask them, <laughs> you can ask them to figure things out. So um, so Dwayne Wessels worked with me on this as well. And Dwayne and I asked Yingdi, you know, could he go off and do this, and he did a great job on it. And I will uh, put a link to the to the paper. Uh, the paper is called "Authority Server Selection of DNS Caching Resolvers," uh, and it's actually a proper academic paper uh, with multiple authors, and it was properly published and peer reviewed and everything. And the date is April 2012, so it's getting a little long in the tooth. Um, but it it, it includes uh, the versions we tested were a couple of versions of Bind, Unbound. Um, 9.7 and 9.8. Yeah, so older versions of Bind, PowerDNS Recursor 3.1, Unbound 1.4, uh, DNS Cache 1.05, and then Windows DNS 6.1, which was Windows Server 2008. So as I say, those are all getting a little old. But what's interesting is that they're all a little bit different. Mm -hmm. um, so it's I think the paper uh, it's pretty well written, and I say that because I even though my name's on it, I didn't write it. <laughs> um, so I think it's 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 worth reading. And I remember we had some interesting findings. Like one, although I think I knew this going into it, DNS cache, for example, by Dan Bernstein, it chooses randomly. Yes, and I think you know? the justification for that, if you asked Dan, is that uh, it's more secure that way. It's yeah. less subject to cache poisoning because uh, somebody who's trying to, to spoof a response to a recursive doesn't know and, and will not be able to guess which of the authoritatives it's queried. Right. And the other thing that was uh, a finding that we got, I remember at the time, was that Unbound has an RTT mechanism very much like Bind, but the thing you didn't mention in the Bind RTT calculations, it gets even more complicated, is the banding. Oh, yes. You know, yes. which is where basically, rather than trying to compare, all right, this one is 62 milliseconds and this one is 61, should I favor 61 because it's one millisecond faster? Instead, they have these bands where they basically say, okay, if it's within a certain amount, just consider it equivalent, and then choose randomly. And Unbound does that, but it's banned the initial band is like 140 milliseconds wide or some very large value. Mm -hmm. So effectively, Unbound is choosing randomly among servers that are close or not so close, yeah, potentially yeah, yeah, even. Yeah. You know, 150 <laughs> milliseconds will get you across the Atlantic, you know, so. On the same side of the globe. There you go. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, if, if this is something you geek out on, it's worth worth reading that paper. And um, if anything, we talked about this before, and I think we need to redo that redo that work and, and get some updated information on it because certainly there have been changes since then. All right. Well, that seems like a, a pretty good answer to Nathan's question. Yeah. Shall we go on to the next one? Yeah. All right. Uh, this comes from uh, listener Tom Gelato. Well, that's a great surname. <laughs> I'm sure he's never had that pointed out before. No, 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 no. Just like 
being named Cricket. I, <laughs> no one's ever remarked on that. Um, so Tom says, I have a question about the maximum number of IP addresses in an SPF record. We are a university where a lot of our faculty and staff use different external email solutions to send email. These domains are sending email as our domain. I guess these mail transport agents are, okay. are sending email as our domain. This causes the emails to be filtered as spam due to their spoofing our domain. To get around this, we need to set up SPF records for each IP of these external email solutions. Um, and he says, our current SPF record looks like the following. And he's got a fairly long SPF mm-hmm. record there that includes... Uh, One, two, three, four, four IPv4 addresses, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Four, some other stuff. Four IPv, IP4 terms in it. And, and then he says, uh, is there a, a limit to how many IP addresses we can have for an SPF record? In other words, how many more IP addresses can we add to the above record? Thank you in advance. All right. Well, as is the case in so many of these podcasts, uh, we, we became experts on this topic right before recording by, <laughs> by doing a whole five minutes worth of research. And this is actually um, a, a pretty straightforward answer, and it's documented in um, the SPF RFC itself, which is 7208. And uh, I refer you to section 4.6.4, where it talks about the um, limits for how much work you would ask a mail transport agent to do, how much DNS work you would ask a mail transport agent to do. Right. And and, and the the short answer is that section of the RFC says that um, you will not cause, thou shalt not (laughs) cause more than 10 DNS lookups. Um, with the the terms that you use within a, an SPF record, so basically what that means is um, some of the, some of the terms that you can use in an SPF record will cause lookups. So, for example, the uh, A um, uh, term causes uh, named IP address mapping uh, to be done. Um, so that's that that'd be one query. Right, but some don't. Like if you list raw IP addresses, the IP four or IP six terms. Um, they don't. So the the section four six four of RFC seventy two eight it actually says, you know, that they don't cause DNS queries at the time of SPF SPF evaluation, and their use is not subject to this limit. So I think the answer is you can have as many as you can cram in a TXT record. That's right. So you, that's what I read it to to say is that you can have as many IP four or IP six terms because they don't cause DNS lookups as you want, but you're subject to that limit of 10 for other terms that do cause lookups. But then, of course, if a TXT record starts to get to- too long, you get to the, the multiple 255-character strings. Do you want to talk about that? Um, we certainly can. I mean, the one easy workaround there uh, is that the SPF mechanism uh, supports include. Mm-hmm. So um, even if you had a very, very long set of, of uh Records you could you could use include I think to have kind of nesting and, okay. and, and refer to other um, other domain names that would have additional text records attached to them to, okay. to get around that limitation. Yeah, well, I just want to point out you can have a TXT record longer than two hundred fifty five. Yes, characters if you just separate it into multiple um, quote delimited strings or not quote delimited but multiple quoted strings. Quoted strings exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then I suppose you'd what you'd only run up against the 16k DNS message limit at that point, right? Uh, Is that right? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you probably want to avoid having a very, very large. Yeah, I'm just wondering what, what's uh, the what's the theoretical maximum? Is it 16k or is it 64k? Oh, but you're right. It's 64k. 64K. It's 64k. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. 
but Ooh, we, but we, don't... Nar- we narrowly averted screaming at the... <laughs> yeah Oliver get off the chair <laughs> <laughs> so all right well have we we're, we're, we thought we'd have so many questions here but we're just moving right along we are steaming along yeah yeah, yeah. all right so we, we we got yet another question here this is from uh, ever faithful listener Grant Taylor who, whom we can count on to to send us a question when we when we ask for it. So uh, Grant writes, Hi, Mr. DNS. Would you please explain what etsyhost.conf's quote-unquote multi-setting is and how its two values, namely on or off, impact things? And he says his understanding is that it has to do with if the system, li- system resolver library will return more than one IP address from Etsy hosts specifically relating to multi-homed machines. And he wants us to elaborate on the pros and cons of each setting and he says, if we want, we can even feel free to wax poetically about the other settings in etsyhost.conf and how they impact name resolution. Well, given that we had to look up etsyhost.conf <laughs> in the first place, uh, I would say that maybe we'll pass on the latter. But I we did so. we did look up the, the the first part, the multi-setting. And that, that actually made a certain amount of sense to me. Um, the way that uh, an Etsy hosts file is searched is, is sequential, right? Etsy host mm-hmm. files um, are typically not sorted. And so if you're looking to do a named IP address mapping in Etsy hosts, you just have to start at the top of the file and start looking for the, the label, you know, the host uh, uh, that you're, you're seeking. And then you return the first, um, the first field in that, in that row that matches, which is the, uh, the IP address. That's, that's the way it used to work anyway. You mm-hmm. may remember uh, back at HP, remember at the end of the, the uh, HP host table's life, the slower the uh, the... 300 series boxes that we had would actually time out before they got to the end of the file. I kind of, yeah. I think I think that it maybe was less of an issue by the time I was there because the risk the risk stuff had already started to come. The, yeah, the, yeah. We just had old. We had like old uh, HP 9000 Model 320s and stuff like that with these 68000 series processors, and they were really really slow. And so what system administrators at HP had to do was sort the Etsy hosts file according to which hosts were looked up the most frequently. I remember that now that you say Yeah, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> not a great job. Uh, but anyway, that's that's just a digression. Um, based on the fact, though, that it's a sequential search, you can see that you're pretty much only going to return one IP address. Whereas DNS, DNS, you can map one domain name to lots of IP addresses, mm-hmm. and you frequently do. Um, so w- what this setting apparently allows you to do is to say, um, I would like... The, the host table search to continue past its first match so that I can potentially return multiple IP addresses. And you stuff those into a, into a structure and then pass it back to the application that caused it. So that's, that would work somewhat more like DNS would, basically. Yeah, it's interesting. So get host by name, which is the, the function that um, you, know, you, you used to do the lookup. I mean, I guess that's part of I was going to say that that's older than DNS, but it's it's not because it really comes from the bind resolver library. Is that right? Get host by well, no, no. Get host by name was actually I think the same entry point that we used for Etsy hosts, and it's just yeah. part of the the standard shared C library. In most I guess cases. I guess it is because I guess okay. So I was on the right track with where I was going with this, which is that it contemplates already hosts with multiple IPs. Because if you look at the struct host int that it returns, it in turn points to an array that can have multiple addresses. Well, post DNS it does. 
You're saying struck toastent change? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm almost certain that it did. In fact, I believe that for backwards compatibility, there were two fields in struct toastent. One was adder, and one was an adder array. Hmm. There was something like that early on because um, they they wanted to make sure that that source code that had been written prior to DNS's advent would still would still kind of work. You could still recompile. And it oh, you're still, right. It'll it'll still work. So I'm looking here. There's a there's a uh, there's an h adder h underscore adder and an h underscore adder list. The, yes, exactly. Yeah, the former being one. Yes. And the the latter being a list. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So well, the h adder is that old that old vestige of the, the host table. All right. That ex- that explains it then. I did I did not know that. There. I'm glad I could clear that up. <laughs> I think that's as much as we want to take on, though. <laughs> I don't want to go any further. I already kind of got in trouble there, so I don't want to go any further. What so. is host.conf? Is that, is that a, I mean, it's obviously a Unixy file. Is it a, is it a particular species of, uh, of Unix or Linux that host.conf belongs to? I think it's old, but beyond that, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, this is in the same vintage as like NS switch, right? But. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Similar but different. Well, yeah, and nswitch.conf was, uh, was a, a Sun, Sun OSism yeah. that um, HPBox kind of copied. I remember, I remember when we implemented that within, uh, within HPBox, when we were still both at HP, uh, following Sun's lead. But host.conf, yeah, I, I don't recognize that. It must be a different, uh, different uh, dialect of Unix. All right, so, um, so last, last question. All right. Now, this is a, a, a big, long question from uh, Jacob Evans, uh, whose question about master and slave serial numbers we answered in a previous podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, I have a question about implementing DNSSEC internally on a public zone. And we took that to mean not that the public zone was queryable from out on the Internet, but rather that it was... Um, allocated out of the internet's namespace, it right. actually, actually had a domain name that you you know came from the internet's namespace. Right, because he talks later on about not wanting to use .local, like wanting to not squat on right. a private name, which I think is admirable because you yeah. uh, you're going to really paint yourself into a corner potentially. Now, because well, I'm already telling you if you're going to read this out, I'm being redundant here, but he's pointing out that with new GTLDs being added. You know, you never know what's going to be added. That's it's, right. it's certainly conceivable that something you thought was reasonable to squat on internally could suddenly start resolving on the internet. Right. Right. Yeah. He says with the release of new TLDs, we've started to register real domains for internal use and avoid the .local domains. Uh, and he says additionally, we'd like to sign our internal zone using DNSSEC. Does this mean we need to publish DS records with our registrar to enable DNSSEC? My internal DNS servers. Uh, which sign these zones are also my DNS resolver servers, which I think he mean by which I think he means recursive mm-hmm. name servers, uh, running uh, Windows Server 2012 R2. If you're wondering why, I'm using SSH FP records, SSH fingerprint records for all my Linux servers, which are IPA clients. That's India Pale Ale. <laughs> no, what is IPA? I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah. Anyway, he says, that, so this happens automatically. So he gives us a little bit of uh, additional information about what the SSHFP records look like and so on. But I think that's enough to actually answer it, right? Yeah. And I, I think the answer depends on how exactly are these internal zones being resolved. Yeah. And I think in, in the case that he's describing, because his 
internal authoritative servers appear to also be as internal recursive servers, um, there's no resolution per se, right? Those recursive servers don't have to look anywhere to find his uh, internal zones. They're right there. They're authoritative for them. That's right. So he's just going to get the answer. So one could even ask, I guess I would want to know, like, why does he want to do DNSSEC in the first place Right. in this case? Right. The, the point being, just in, in case you missed it, that that if you are querying the authoritative name server for a zone directly, even if that zone is signed using DNSSEC, it's not going to do validation for you. Right, because there's kind of there's kind of no point in that you're getting the answer straight from the horse's mouth. There's That's no right. nobody in between. Although, do you remember early on it was IC admitted this was kind of an ill-conceived move that early DNSSEC implementations in Bind eight they would actually take the time to validate the zone on load. On load, yeah, yeah. I do remember that. Yeah. I do remember that. Which they sort of backed up, backed away from, thinking if you've, I mean, what's what's the point? You've got it right there on disk. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um, so so he's effectively by by having his name servers do double duty as the recursive name servers and also uh, the authoritative name servers for the zone. He's uh, th there is no way to validate yeah. that data. He's going to if he wanted to do that, he would have to have a separate set of recursive name servers from his authoritative name right. servers. Well, so let's talk about that case. So what if he did have a separate set of internal authoritative servers with this zone data and a separate set of recursive ones? Well, then what? Well, in that case, um, he still probably wouldn't put the DS records in the parent zone unless those internal recursive name servers were working their way down, actually talking to external parent name servers and following delegation to his internal name servers. Right. That's what I meant earlier about it depends. In order to answer his question about does he need a DS record, we have to know how are his recursives finding the authoritatives. Right. And in, in the case that he's describing, th there's no finding. They are the authoritatives. Right. Exactly. And now in this case, if you have to find the authoritatives by going to the Internet's external namespace and getting referred back inward, then it would make sense to have a DS record, although that's kind of weird. It, it is kind of weird, um, also because uh, presumably these, these internal name servers are not accessible from the outside world, so you'd have to load up the delegation to point to purely internal name servers, internal authoritative name servers. Those could even be running on like RFC 1918 addresses, and if that's the yeah. case, I don't think Registrars are going to allow you to even do the delegation. Well, it's not going to work. Well, yeah. it would only work for you if it worked for anybody. Yeah, I wish I could remember, for example, the .com and .net registry validation rules. Like, I'm not even sure. I shouldn't say because I can't remember, but I have a dim recollection that that VeriSign's registry servers from a registrar will not even accept. Um, uh, a name server with a, a private address. That would certainly yeah. be my expectation. Yeah. So, so if that's the case, then then he would have to have a different way. He would have to have like conditional forwarding or something that pointed his recursive name servers to uh, these internal authoritative yeah. name servers. And then we were talking about this earlier. He would have to have a trust anchor. Exactly. Yeah. So he would have to have his recursive servers turn on validation, configure the key, probably the KSK for these authoritative zones, uh, he'd have to configure that as a trust anchor on his recursive servers. Right, right. So and as many, I mean, if he, were, if he were signing more than just one zone, he'd need as many trust anchors as, uh, as apexes, basically. Right. So if he had, for example, a reverse mapping uh, address space, he would need to, need to have a trust anchor configured on the recursives for that as well. Yeah, so there really is a parallel between how the resolution process works to find the zones with how the validation chain of trust gets built 
to validate the zones since the chain of trust is built according to the delegation. If you're doing something unusual for the delegation, namely if you're not going directly from the root to the zone, where you could start with the roots trust anchor and work your way down building a chain of trust. If you can't do that, if you have to short circuit that with, as you say, something like conditional forwarding, then you need to also short circuit validation building That's the right. chain of trust That's with right. something like a trust anchor. Well, not something like, like with a trust anchor. <laughs> yeah, not something like a trust anchor <laughs> with a trust anchor. Yes. What is like trust anchor? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> well, that's that's short work, right? Yeah. That's, is that the fourth? That is. But talking about trust anchors is a segue into something I wanted to mention. What's that? Well, which is I was at the key ceremony. Oh, right. Yeah, I was at the, the, the key ceremony. It was, uh, let's see, it was the end of October, mm-hmm. uh, October 27th, I want to say. It was in uh, ICANN's... Uh, Culpeper, Virginia, KMF, Key Management Facility. And at at that time, we generated the next uh, KSK for the root zone. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So the, 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 the root zone KSK is finally rolling over after six, six years. It was, will it be seven by the time it rolls? Or? It will be. Yeah. It will be because we signed the root in July of 2010. Right. So, and so, in fact, in our internal, well, not just internal, in the public documentation, um, that ICANN's putting together, we're, we're calling them KSK-2010 and KSK-2017, mm-hmm. since even though we just generated it in 2016, it won't be won't be uh, seen until 2017. So, and this is this was subsequent, I think, to a rollover that, or not a rollover. Did, wasn't there a, a, another change, but it was to the ZSK to make the ZSK longer? Exactly, yeah. So the, so the KSK has always been 2048 bits, mm-hmm. but the ZSK ha- had been uh, 1024 bits. Mm-hmm. And I want to say it was September 30th. Now is when Dwayne Wessels is screaming at his iPhone if I've gotten the date wrong. I think it was September. No, no, I'm not sure that I got it right. It was, re- <laughs> it was recently. Sorry, Dwayne. Uh, re- recently, VeriSign... Um, changed the uh, length of the ZSK to also be 2048-bit. Excellent. Yeah. So we're starting our march toward the toward the rollover. So that, that case ceremony, we're doing this all on the uh, cadence, the quarterly cadence of these key ceremonies. So every, key, every quarter there's one of these key ceremonies to generate signatures over the ZSKs for the following quarter. Right, um, right. But so in this case, in the Q4 um, 2016 ceremony, uh, we just generated the key, and that's it. Right. And then the um, uh, some some ICANN employees took the key material. They literally the next day flew to L.A. and that morning went to the key management facility in L.A. Mm-hmm. and opened the safes and just put them in. They had a mini ceremony just to get the key material into the safe, and then a mini uh, ceremony. So small cake, just a few noisemakers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so then we'll have we'll have a, a, the next ceremony in Q1 of 2017. Mm-hmm. That's when we'll actually import that key into the, uh, the equipment, the HSMs, in that facility. So then we're calling that operationally ready. That means that the key is in two places, and then that's when people will... Right, right now, if you know where to look, if you dig through the ceremony audit logs, you can find out what the new key is, but we're not... We're not telling people, we're not going out of our way to tell people because there's mm-hmm. a theoretical possibility that something could happen and we'll have to generate a, a new key. But right. but after February, why then it'll be operationally ready. And then I, I need to start, every one of these podcasts, I need to start reminding people, even though I think our listeners probably are among the most, most aware of the key rollover than anyone else. But October 11th, 2017, that's the day that we roll from the current 
KSK to the next KSK. Right. But the the role is going to be, it's a, a, a double signed role, right? It's not. No, no, and it's going to be, oh, so it's a pre-published. A pre yes. Okay, yes. So, so then as early as the new KSK shows up in the RR set, they should be they should be reconfiguring recursive name servers to, to have the new KSK exactly. as a trust anchor. Yeah, so immediately so the so the Q1 2017 key ceremony is going to be sometime in February. And immediately after that, we're going to publish the new key. Actually what we're going to publish is right now on the IANA uh, website there is a file called root-anchors.xml mm -hmm. which is the official way that um, ICANN slash IANA publishes the trust anchor and it's XML that basically has the fields of a DS record in it yeah. so that's our preferred way to, to uh, publish the key is, is a DS record and that's signed by the ICANN CA so you can, right. you can validate it that way and so that file, that root anchors XML will be updated in February 2017. So at that point, you could um, configure your uh, your validators if they'll take a DS record. Right. Or you could just look it up using a query tool and then validate it against the DS yeah, record. Yeah, but that's not until July. July, oh, right, right. Okay. July 11th, 2017. Geez, I hope I've got the date right. I should. <laughs> that's when that's when the key appears for the first time in the, in the root zone. Okay. Yeah, I see. Taking it nice and slowly. So. Yes, indeed. Stately progress. Yes. So what else? We have to talk about something non-DNS because that's, that's our... Yeah, sort of our MO, isn't yeah. it? Rogue One? Oh, yeah. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Uh, don't have tickets yet. I do know people who have tickets. I, I, don't, have, I don't have tickets. I probably should. We have, um, we have an Arclight Theater in Bethesda now. Oh. Do you know Arclight? I or is that just don't. an L.A. thing? I don't know it. Is oh, it's, it? it's a theater chain, uh -huh. and I think I think it started in LA. In LA. I mm -hmm. guess I thought there'd be some up here, but I think the only one outside of at least the West Coast is in um, is in Bethesda, actually. Uh -huh. So it's nice. It's a it's a, a a nice theater with comfy seats, but it has assigned seats. Yes. Oh, so that's so nice. that's really really yeah. nice. So we pretty much only go to ArcLight now. Yeah, we've we've taken to to going to. Uh, a few theaters near us that have assigned seating because it's just so much nicer. There's a there's a nice theater down in Santa Cruz on the Pacific Garden Mall called the Regal, and uh, the Regal has nice recliners and assigned seating, and there really aren't that many seats in the in the theater. So it's worth the drive of 30 or 35 minutes or whatever to to be able to go get an assigned seat, not have to worry about showing up, you know, however many hours ahead of time. So you have to go over the hill to get to a theater with assigned seats? Well, no. Uh, you don't have to go over the hill. You can go in the other direction. But some of the other ones, one of them is in Newark, which is sort of as far in the opposite direction. Yeah. And then you're in Newark. <laughs> so Hey, I lived in, Fre <laughs> I lived in Fremont. <laughs> so I'd rather have dinner in Santa Cruz, personally, uh, after a movie at the Regal than to go to, go to Newark. But... Uh, I think one of the one of the theaters in Mountain View has it. It's surprisingly difficult to find down in the South Bay area. Mm -hmm. it, you'd think that civilized people would prefer exactly. that kind of that kind of seating. Uh, do, have you seen anything good? Did you see uh, Arrival, for example? You know, I I didn't. I, w I was back um, with my uh, in my hometown over uh, Thanksgiving, and some folks uh, went to see Arrival, and I. I don't know. I just couldn't get interested in it. I read I read the short story, which is not long. You can read it in. Have you read the Ted Chiang short no, story? No, no, no. I haven't. Yeah, it's. I mean, you can read it in half an hour. I mean, if oh. if, if that. Yeah, and I don't know. It just wasn't 
it just didn't grab me. I, oh. I just didn't think. I mean, I liked the short story a lot, uh-huh. but maybe it's because I knew how it ended from the short story that I didn't want to sit through an entire movie. Uh-huh. That they had had sort of extended it to yeah to a full movie. Length. That was also it too. It's like how how are they going to make an entire movie out of this? So. Yeah. But my you know my my son and father and brother in law liked it. So. Yeah, yeah. And Amy Adams is great. I mean, I I adore Amy Adams. She's fantastic in in almost everything. Um, yeah. So I saw that. I enjoyed it. Uh, I'm trying to think of anything else that I saw lately. Has there been any? Have there been any other science fiction movies? Out that have been good. I want to say that there was that there there have been one or two others that were worth seeing, but that was probably quite a quite a while before that. I don't know. I'm still coming out of that time where you know you needed a babysitter and kids were too young to see most things, mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. I just I, I had a long long movie drought, and I'm realizing I'm now to the point where the kids are interested in seeing movies and wanting to see the same movies that I'd want to see, and so yeah yeah. You gotta take advantage of that. I do, I do. Well, the kids. My wife has no interest in any of the Star Wars stuff. So, <laughs> so the kids and I had to had to all that. We saw, we saw um, Force Awakens multiple times. In, yeah, in the, yeah, in, yeah. The, in the theater, I just just loved it. I mean, I know it's. I mean, we could go on a whole digression about Force Awakens and how it's derivative and how, you know. But I, I don't care. I loved it. I, I I liked it a lot. I've seen it. I saw it once in the theaters, and then I think I've seen it once. Once on a plane. Since then, it seems to me on every every United flight, you know, with the personal device entertainment system, I think <laughs> yeah. you can see it on any of those uh, any of those flights. So I, I really did. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. I thought uh, the new characters, Daisy Ridley character, uh, Daisy Ridley's character was yeah. very good. John Boyega's character was good. Um, so that that was that was a, a welcome. Welcome improvement, Dover. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we don't. In, in in my house, we 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 don't even mention the prequels. We 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 don't. And and I've my, and my kids, bless them. They they have enough sense to realize how awful they are. You yeah. Know, they. Yeah. I mean, I think we had the DVDs at one point, and I don't even think we have them anymore. I don't. I don't want them in the house. No. Cast them into the street. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, I think there's a limit to how much we can expect our listeners to listen to us talking about science fiction movies, so we should probably sign off. Most of them have probably already tuned out. (laughs) You know what, though? I did listen to, um, so actually the podcast that was kind of the inspiration for this one, John Gruber of Daring Firewall, or Daring Firewall, Daring Daring Fireball, um, he and a guy named Dan Benjamin did a podcast, just the two of them, for a while, and then took a hiatus, and now he's back and does it with a rotating uh, guests and man, are they long? Yeah. They are like two and a half hours. Wow! And and I actually I just recently listened to an entire one of them, not oh. all in one sitting, but I had it on in the car and it was it was interesting. And so I and, and I just but two and a half hours is too long to yeah. listen to anybody. So I think <laughs> I think here at pushing forty minutes, we're probably probably pushing it. So thank you everyone for listening this long. If you have. And uh, we do always appreciate your questions. Please do keep sending them to uh, Mr. DNS, MRDNS at ask-mrdns.com. So uh, until next time, thanks very much. Talk to you then. Bye-bye.